Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Well, there was a lot of commentary during the campaign, during the period between the campaign and the inauguration about how the presidency changes an individual, how someone might change when he gets into that uh, role. Elaine Kamark has studied this uh, closely. She's a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, the author of a book, Why Presidents Fail and How They Can Succeed. Uh, Again, she joins us this morning from our uh, studio, Bloomberg 99.1 Studios uh, in Washington, uh, D.C. Let me ask you, first of all, just about the role of storms here. Let me me stick with the news. There have been presidents uh, throughout history who have been shaped by natural uh, disasters. When When you look back at history, how big a turning point have storms been for presidents of the United States, Elaine? Sometimes they've been big. Uh, the biggest one, of course, was was Katrina for uh, President Bush because the response was so bad and so chaotic and so inadequate. I think that if the response is adequate, if people you know, get their money, if people's lives are saved, et cetera, then I think it doesn't have much impact on a president. But boy, oh boy, don't screw it up. That's that's the lesson of Katrina for uh, President Bush. You know, I, after the, the election, Tom and I would talk frequently about the, the degree to which events can change. They can pile up. Uh, a president has to deal with what is, uh, what is unexpected. Uh, just looking back at these last six, seven months, how have things piled up and how has this president done dealing with so many things on so many different fronts? Well, he's been so erratic that I'm starting to think of him as President Chaos. He, it, you never know what he's going to do. Um, I, I admire, for instance, the decision he made uh, last week with um, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, but it threw his own party into chaos. He seems to be hell-bent on making enemies in Washington, particularly enemies of his own party in the United States Senate, which is a little bit mysterious given that there is a, a investigation into his campaign that looks to be quite serious and given that the only people in Washington – or anywhere that can remove a president are the members of the United States Senate. Uh, this president doesn't behave yeah. in rational ways. Chapter six of your book, Why Presidents Fail, which is refreshing whatever anybody's politics is, is the buck doesn't stop here after all. How much do we yearn for Harry Truman? <laughs> I think we do yearn for Harry Truman, but I think we are yearning, frankly, for a normal president. And we this president is not that. Was President Obama normal president? Well, I was going to say that part of the reason for the book is that both Presidents Bush and Obama, in other words, our first two presidents of the 21st century, um, had certain problems in being president. The biggest one being that they were enamored of communication at the expense of implementation. They seemed to keep campaigning and keep talking and keep talking 
without paying any attention to the government that they run. And the problem with this is that, of course, Americans see the president, for better or for worse, as the CEO of the federal government. So when it screws up big time, like when there's a terrible response to Katrina, when the websites crash and and fail as they did with Obama's health care, when the government screws up, the president gets the blame. So that I think has mm. been a that's been a problem of the 21st well, century. Good history lesson. Let's come back. Elaine, come back with us uh, with the Brookings Institute. A really interesting. It's it's a it's a brief read, 155 pages. But I'll tell you, folks, it's got some real pop to it. Why presidents fail and how they can succeed. I guess that. Uh, Sort of sums up the theme. There was some reporting over the weekend about the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement, something the president has been outspokenly against. Uh, and the reporting was that John Kelly, the new White House chief of staff, still new White House chief of staff, played a big role in keeping that deal from being uh, scuttled by the White House. Uh, makes me wonder about the role of the chief of staff in shaping the president. Uh, Elaine Kamark joins us now. She's senior fellow of governance studies at the Brookings Institution, author of the book, Why Presidents Fail and How They Can Succeed uh, Again. John Kelly was brought on, Elaine, uh, and was much ballyhooed. Uh, he's going to be trying to to Rain in this intractable president. Uh, how, how, how successful has he been in doing that, low these few weeks in? And, and when you look back at history, what role have chiefs of staff played? Chiefs of staff are always important, and they've gotten more important as the job of the president has gotten more and more complex. I think we can all remember that TV shot of John Kelly's face uh, dropping dramatically as the president went off in one of his unscripted and highly inappropriate responses to the march and the tragedy in Charlottesville, Virginia. So he's he's having his challenges, to say the least, uh, holding this president in line. Um, I think he's probably doing as good a job as can be done, and there may be a little bit of learning on the part of this president that his freewheeling style yeah. has actually been hurting him. So we'll, we'll see, but this is maybe the toughest job I've ever seen a, a chief of staff yeah. have for a president. Well, I guess all wishing for James Baker to show up again as a younger <laughs> yeah, James. Yeah, we are. <laughs> uh, Baker, tell me about Brookings and the thought on a resurgent Congress. One of the hopes and prayers here with the events and particularly with Schumer and Pelosi on the couches, McConnell screamed, is the idea that Congress finally takes over legislative power that was given up decades ago. Does Brookings see any hope to that? Yes, uh, we see a lot of hope to that because, in fact, one of the things that I've predicted will happen, given the sort of chaotic nature of this presidency, is that power will move away from it and towards Congress. We already saw that, ironically, with the failed attempt to craft a replacement health care bill. Most of that action was taking place in the Congress, not in the White House. The president himself was really uninvolved in that. And while they failed, I think that if you were looking for details on a potential plan, you had to look at Congress. I think the same thing is happening now with tax reform, that the action is in Congress, the shape of the plan is um, coming together in Congress. You do have a little bit more White House involvement because you have a, a fairly talented economic advisor, Gary Cohn, in there. But the bottom line is when you have a president like this president who has no experience in this in this world and has no policy depth, it is natural that 
power is going to move uh, back to the Congress, particularly with complex legislation. What have you, you learned about the, uh, the bully pulpit as, uh, as occupied by this, this president? Uh, I, I would advance here that you can learn more by what he, when he doesn't say something than, than, what, than when he does. There have been big events where he hasn't tweeted or he hasn't uh, spoken out. What can we learn from how he approaches that, that platform? I think he approaches that platform when he is interested in shoring up his base. The amazing thing about this president, and and I've written before about other presidents, that I think they're too obsessed with communication, that communication is the great um, fallacy of modern presidents because in the end, we end up not caring what they say. We end up caring what they do. Uh, This president, however, seems to be communicating primarily to his base. And you see this in the poll numbers. He has a a group of loyal supporters in the country, but he has a group of loyal supporters in the country. But what he doesn't hasn't done as president is he hasn't expanded his base. And I think that's dangerous for any president. Elaine, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Elaine Kamark with Brookings Institution and, uh, of course, her book, Why Presidents Fail. Of course, a lot of debate. I mean, David, the shift from September to a December debate is tangible, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it does It does uh, free up some, some breathing space here for, for lawmakers. I think there is the sense that we're going to be doing this once again here in just a couple of months' uh, time. But it'll be interesting to watch this week, certainly. How how that freeing up uh, this, yeah. this this kind of uh, olive leaf extended by the uh, olive branch extended by the the Democrats uh, you know, might change the the calculus there on Capitol Hill over these next few weeks. There was September eleventh, and yes, there was a day before September tenth. But what there was is. Our next guest mentioned uh, earlier on Bloomberg Television, there were the five weeks afterwards where the world sort of stopped. And John Miller, then New York did what New York has done since 16, what, 27 or... I mean, there's been many other times where this city on the mat has picked itself up. And you have lived that in real estate at Miller Samuel. What's a single real estate thing that you think of when you think of a resurgent downtown? Uh, well, I, I think of the, uh, the, the massive increase in activity and pricing just over the last 16 years. Uh, one, of, one of the things that, you know, I think during the five or six week period, of, as you mentioned, after 9-11, nobody know, knew, everybody's looking over their shoulders, what's going to happen. Um, and then we saw a, uh, a bidding war, a, a four-way bidding war on a on a an apartment in Midtown, uh, one bedroom, and uh, and the market clicked back on. So I think that was pretty amazing. And then then the other thing was just if you look back and all the development and the improvements that have been um, made in Lower Manhattan, the median price in Lower Manhattan, which would be Battery Park City in the financial district, largely. Uh, grew over the last 16 years somewhere in the neighborhood of 350%, which is double what Manhattan as a whole increased, which was about 175% in terms of uh, pricing, which I think is pretty uh, much a testament, as you said, to uh, to the, the city. Mm-hmm. 
We remember the, the debate over the site itself, what was going to be built there, what it was going to look like. When you look at the area surrounding it, how much of that was, was held back as those deliberations went on? Well, you know, I, I think what, what's the biggest takeaway for me of sort of that era and then what we ended up was with was the initial intention was to build with there were liberty bonds there's a, there's a, the original intention was to build rentals to rental development and as that market has always been very transient in other words uh, much more of a uh, nine to five uh, neighborhood as opposed to a uh, 24-7 sure. residential market. And so a lot of Class B, Class C office buildings that uh, were past their prime were converted to residential. And then the second wave ended up being a lot of condominium development. And um, many of the um, the neighborhood groups have been really pushing that market to transition to not be so heavily uh, reliable on rentals and go to make it a, a 24-7 neighborhood. Does this neighborhood have a sense of, of itself yet? Does it know what it is? You mentioned its history uh, as a, a place predominantly of office spaces. Now I go down to Battery Park City and it's uh, replete with families. It's tons of families. Yes. Um, d- does it know what it wants to be? Is it still evolving, do you think? I think it's still evolving, but I think it knows what it wants to be. I think it wants to be much more of a 24-7 mixed use with a lot more residential than than it has been uh, one of the things you know you know as you walk the promenade of battery park city um you know near the uh near the site the um uh prior to this catastrophe most of the condominiums that were built or conceived in that area were one bedrooms and now it's much yeah. more about family apartments how's the retail doing i mean uh, one of our producers karen buchanan Dropped thousands of dollars this weekend. A fact check this one. We, we fact checked it. He, he was the guy coming through the door with like eight bags. He looked like you know the wonderful late Joan Rivers on another shopping. I can't well, verify how, that. How is it? Not of us. It's like there's there's two developments, right? Well, you know, one of the things that uh, that the area was known for uh, was initially right after the the event was this tourism place to pay your respects. And really what's happened is there's a tremendous amount of retail. You have to remember, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of square feet were lost with the towers. That was a huge shopping resource for living there. And uh, that has really changed. It's really expanded. And so um, there's a there's a nightlife and there's a lot of uh, retail. Now, retail generally uh, is having issues relative to maybe where it was a few years ago, just like most of uh, most large metro areas with the onset of, uh, you know, online ordering and things like that. But but it's pretty impressive. So it's almost like a new a new neighborhood. I think of retail in that area. I think of the Brookfield place, this kind of absurd mall, a beautiful place. But if I went to go buy a pair of socks, it would cost me 100 what does that say about retail in this city overall? It's very, it's very high end there. Are we seeing when you look at the health of retail, that's where things are doing all right? Yeah. So, so one of the things that has been sort of used to describe uh, the downtown market is that it essentially accelerated gentrification. Um, all this development, because land, even with uh, incentives, is still very expensive uh, uh, relative to the outer boroughs. So a lot of the product that has come in, whether it's rental or for sale, has been skewed towards the, say, upper half of the uh, 
uh, price range uh, uh, relative to Manhattan. So that's part of the reason why we've seen such a big jump in the median. Uh, even with the median, there's been such an influx of higher end development that that's that's part yeah. of it. Yeah, in the, in the in the time that we've got with you uh, this morning. Help us with the overall rental market. Is it still a dearth of inventory out there? Uh, so, <laughs> so it depends on the it depends on the segment of the market that you're talking about. Um, if you're really talking about the upper five, ten percent of the market, it's which the talking segment, we're talking. I feel like it, I feel like he's pumping me for information no, on no, his own no, rental. What, what about for mere mortals? For, for mere mortals, uh, the the rental market is exceedingly tight at the bottom, meaning the entry level. If you split the market into three segments, nothing has changed over the last year. The bottom third or the the entry is wicked tight. There is no supply, uh, mm. and uh, or I shouldn't okay. say no, but it's very limited. <clears throat> And the middle is a little bit more, but still very tight. Right. And the upper end is still soft. Um, but we're seeing a little bit of an improvement, but still very soft hey, relative. Is, is to the Brooklyn other. the new Brooklyn, or is there a different new Brooklyn? Because Gura moved there, and everybody's moving on. <laughs> well, I, Where, where's the new Brooklyn? Well, I used to say Queens is the new Brooklyn. Yeah. Queens now, is the new Brooklyn. Now I'm saying Bronx is the new yeah. Queens. All right. uh, uh, that's, Should my daughter buy a one-bedroom in Charleston? Up in Boston, you know the new GE, the boom of biotech. I I feel you, like you know that's where a, Charleston is, right? Yeah, but I I feel I feel like there's no good answer because I would. You, you know, got that right. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, you would be passive about it. I mean, one of the one of the challenges. Trust me, it's not all cash. <laughs> One of the challenges, you know, nationwide in, in urban markets has been uh, the overbuilding of high, the very high-end rental, everything. Whether Brooklyn, right? See how he yeah. assumes the yeah. daughter's slipping into a high-end? That's right. This is, why, this is why there's no upside to me answering his question. Uh, but but John Miller joining us by phone next time. Do you, do you have a thumb for the realtors? Listen, we've got a huge audience of realtors that, that listen to us. For the realtors listening, is it going to be a thumb up fall, thumb up into the holiday season? Well, it, from the signs we saw in the summer, which, you know, August is the weakest month of the year, um, we did see a little bit of an uptick. So I think that the takeaway for me is that fall this year is probably going to be about the same as last year. Mm -hmm. Not much different. Maybe a little bit mm -hmm. more activity, but not much. Well, thank you for not making a choice on Charleston versus Cambridge. <laughs> Make a note, Mr. Miller, sometime in February. John Miller. We'll be, we'll be there for the co-signing. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Miller Samuels, John Miller, and, and and wonderful to have John Miller with us as we look back 16 years to, you know, and I, I got to admit, David, I always felt New York would boom yeah. off of that horrific tragedy, but a lot of people, public and private officials driving downtown New York City forward. It is about an economic resiliency, about the recovery of downtown, and really, for that matter, how a system uh, works. He has been a student of the system for his entire year. His uh, exceptional uh, economic academics on information, things we see and things we don't see, but also on international economics as well. 
Joining us from Gary, Indiana, of course, Columbia University, Joseph Stiglitz. Uh, Professor Stiglitz, wonderful to speak to you on this September 11th. What is it about capitalism that clears markets and makes people recover? Well, it's, it's in a way, the, the price system, the incentives. Uh, uh, there's a shortage of housing, so people build housing. The, the, the other question you want to know is what impedes that? Why does it happen easily? Why is there a need for government? The answer typically is uh, people have had their lives ruined, they don't have any money, and they can't borrow. Uh, and you ask, well, why didn't they put away money? Why didn't they buy insurance? And the reason for that is markets don't work very well. Uh, and uh, so it's a wonderful instance of showing that when uh, you say when the crunch comes down, people don't really rely on markets. They rely on government. They rely on government to make sure that the damage is mitigated. Right. Joe, Joe, if, if uh, President Trump called upon you to be chairman of the Fed, would you accept? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yes, I think I would. And the answer is, you're serving the country. Uh, it's not who appoints you. Uh, it's uh, the management of monetary policy is uh, a very important uh, function. What worries me is that he won't be looking for uh, the person who will serve the country well. He'll be work looking for the person who is most loyal to him. Uh, and so it's loyalty rather than competency, uh, with a dose of ideology that will be thrown on thrown in on his case. Professor Stiglitz, uh, just uh, too short with you this morning on this September 11th, as we as we mark all these moments of, of silence. Let me ask you about a piece that you've written here for Project Syndicate. I urge everyone to take a look at it, uh, reflecting on on what we saw in Texas and Louisiana after Hurricane Harvey and what we're seeing now uh, in Florida. What's what's your takeaway as an economist, as, as somebody who studies public policy? How should we begin to make sense of, of what's happened there? What's the takeaway for you? Well, uh, I think there's so many takeaways. One of them is uh, it was uh, a weather-related event, uh, what we call an extreme event, and the uh, uh, Increased occurrence of these extreme events has been predicted by science as a result of climate change. And so here you have a part of the country where there are a large number of climate deniers. You have a president who, who is uh, at least ambivalent about climate change, if not a climate denier, left uh, Paris. And we are suffering as a result of uh, this climate change. Uh, in the early days of climate change, uh, many people say, oh, it's going to affect poor countries in the South, uh, not uh, a country like the United States. Uh, that was wrong. Mm. It's very clearly affecting the U.S. Joe Stiglitz, thank you so much. Professor Stiglitz at Columbia, and we greatly appreciate We'll tweet out that article. Uh, his attendance. Yeah, you, well. yeah, the Project Syndicate article was quite good. Good to have Joe Stiglitz on with us, who's uh, uh, been with us through a financial crisis and also political crises. Uh, as well. Putting our next guest here, Kurt Anderson, and uh, 
thank all our guests for their flexibility as we mark these moments of, of silence. Like Kurt Anderson yeah. prepared a new guide to what he calls fantasy land in America, in which facts are uh, subjective yeah, things and, and seem to matter less uh, and less. He has one of our great quotes. You are entitled to your own opinion, but you are not <laughs> entitled to your own facts. Moynihan, way out front of the last two years. Talk to us a bit about how you approach this project. You go way back here before the founding of, of, of this country. What is it uh, that's particularly American about this, this phenomenon of treating facts subjectively? I thought you were about to say you go way back before President Trump. <laughs> but no, I do go back to the very beginning, uh, the first European settlers. Well, I mean, uh, in the very beginning, of course, we had two groups of settlers uh, from England who came to America. One uh, in the South who thought, despite all evidence to the contrary, they were going to find gold and get rich overnight, didn't, died, kept coming, didn't, died, kept coming for 20 years until they decided, nah, tobacco, better idea. In the North, we had uh, essentially the most, the, the, uh, some religious zealots, the most the most zealous extreme sub-subset of, a, of, of the Puritans um, who came here deciding they were going to start a theocracy and a Christian utopia and wait for the second coming. And, and so, you know, that, that, that was our birth as a, as a, as a European-American country, and, and it kept going. Uh, the combination of extreme religious belief, uh, kind of free-for-all charlatanism of various stripes, and, and just the, 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 the it's, it's the, there's a lot of good side uh-huh. to this American idea of, oh, we can do anything, we can believe anything, we can become anything, we can pretend we're anything. And, of course, that is part of what made us great, but uh, eventually uh, the balance between that and the reality checks got a bit out of whack. How did you begin to, to think about these issues in particular? There's a wonderful passage in the book in which you go back to the Jonathan Edwards sermon, Sitters in the Hands of, a, of an Angry God. You're reacting to it. You do the same thing with the Salem Witch Trials uh, as well. It's it's almost sort of what you're, you're thinking as you read uh, the, the words on the page. How long had this been percol- percolating for you? It percolated in lots of... Uh, uh, streams for a long time. I had I, written about um, sort of the entertainment takeover of everything. I'd written about uh, the, the, how uh, creationism was moving into the public schools. Lots of strands were things I'd been writing about and thinking about for years. And I'd been writing novels about some of this stuff. I wrote a novel set in the 1840s in which I learned a lot <laughs> that, that became useful for this uh, history uh, that I've written. So uh, but it was really uh, around 2012, 13, when when it seemed to be coming to a head, and I thought, wow, maybe yeah. I maybe I have a theory uh, that connects all these things, and then I <clears throat> began well, my research and proved I'm, it. We we could go for like three hours. Oh, let's do on any number of journalism. <laughs> I want to come back with uh, Kurt Anderson and talk about uh, really the extraordinary efforts of Spy Magazine and what they did with President Trump. A million years ago, and of course, we must talk about uh, the path forward for Vanity Fair, which has had such an impact uh, on society as well. Kurt Anderson with us in support of Fantasyland, how America went haywire to be direct, a must read. Uh, We are seven minutes away from another moment of silence. This flight 77. I'll let David introduce that into the Pentagon. Uh, with us, Kurt Anderson. David Guru is saying we have to talk to Kurt about his book. And even worse is I was wrong. It's like, yeah, yeah, another media book. Who gives a damn? Well, guess what? Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, 
a 500-year history back to the Romans. Uh, Kurt Anderson uh, uh, with us, really a timely book. You have four citations in your index on September 11th. How did you fold this horrific national event into your fantasy land? Well, because part of what I describe as the as fantasy land and as the takeover of of uh, and legitimizing of untrue beliefs among Americans is what happened in terms of the conspiracy theories uh, after the 9-11 attacks and this rise of the so-called truther movement, which among other things, in addition to being uh, like so many absurd conspiracy theories, absurd uh, and, and awful, um, showed that conspiracy theories were, were, were had partisans on the left as well as the right. It, while, People on both sides uh, still uh, pursue that idea that 9-11 was an inside job. Uh, it, it, real, it had real traction uh, on the left uh, initially. You know, it, it, it's a long history, as, as Tom says. So they're in the title of, of the book. But um, the Internet, the creation of the Internet and the communities therein, uh, hugely important here to how we've gotten to where we are today. Uh, absolutely. I mean, and, and again, <laughs> it's 500 years. There, there were steps along the way in national character pieces and inclinations but and 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 the 1960s play a big role in my history mm-hmm. but absent absent the internet and and the infrastructure it provides for untruth i mean I, i'm not sure we would i don't think we would be where we are today it, it was it was a, a, an essential step in this perfect storm you mentioned truthiness when when Stephen Colbert comes out with that with that neologism and uh, Karl Rove quotation uh, as well about uh, uh, realities and our sense of of realities. How much of that is mirrored through history? In other words, um, was was that putting a name or putting a, a face to something that had been existing for a very long time? It had existed for a very long time. The idea of truthiness, which. If if you haven't heard it since 2005, when that the first episode of the Colbert Report, go back. It's amazing how well it holds up, and it's about no. I feel the truth. Forget books. I feel the truth. That's a very American idea from from the beginning, um, and and so it does go back. I don't until fairly recently, the establishment, the hated mm-hmm. mainstream establishment, right. uh, kept a kind of. Uh, di- a balance kept to tamp down yeah. the truthiness as a ruling paradigm. You mentioned 1840, and of course, the thing about Kurt Anderson that's so important is you always deliver history uh, with your thinking about where we are right now. I mentioned uh, Tommy Lee Jones with Daniel Day Lewis in Lincoln. And that was a time where Congress was in charge. Even with the Civil War, the executive wasn't the executive like today. Do you have any belief that we can get back to Thaddeus Stevens and Tommy Lee Jones with that terrible toupee? Um, well, those aren't real. Those are actors. <laughs> the okay? congressmen are the toupees. Uh, speaking of fantasy land, no, I, I mean, uh, the idea of uh, part of, I think, w- of our dysfunction in Washington is is how it relates to what I, well one of the ways it relates to what I'm talking about in Fantasyland is that uh, the 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 leaders in Washington are so driven by this tail wagging their dog, mm-hmm. which is to say cable news and the rest. So I I, I you know right. I I don't I, I am not overwhelmingly hopeful. You know, Kurt Anderson, where this is fantasy, and we want to come back and talk to the state of media here with Mr. Anderson in a moment. Of course, uh, all of it fired up uh, uh, within New York City, certainly, and even Los Angeles with what's going on at Vanity Fair. Uh, the images are tangible on this September 11th. David Gurr, let me do the one on the left, which is New York City, the police officer attending behind, is two kids who were children 16 years ago. 
uh, with images of the people they lost reading off the names here. And again, the image of the names around one of the foundation pools as well. Yeah, and uh, the the image on the right, we're looking at all these screens uh, in the studio here. A uh, crowd gathered outside the Pentagon just outside of uh, Washington, uh, D.C., a memorial there with benches uh, and trees, memorial inside the Pentagon as well. The president and the first lady have just uh, arrived there. They took the motorcade over from uh, the White House. Now about 30 minutes ago, we watched. They observed a moment of silence on the South Lawn uh, of the White House. Um, mm-hmm. We'll soon see something similar here outside uh, the Pentagon. It will be interesting to see. Of course, uh, we have had the great fortune, particularly uh, with uh, Admiral Stravitas and with General Kimmett, of perspective on the military. And and certainly, David, one of the backdrops here is a Pentagon that it appears will get a lot more funding on a percentage, a proportional basis here in the coming months. Indeed, the the Senate Armed Services Committee is scheduled to take up the the appropriations bill, I think, this week, uh, a storied process that usually goes well into the evening. This is something that Senator John McCain has been uh, overseeing in recent years. Uh, Not many people in Washington talking about regular order, but that is still a vestige of of the old Washington, the debate over uh, defense funding. We call them now simply by their flight numbers. Flight 77 was American Airlines, Flight 77. It was from Dulles. I think we forget that, that uh, this was a plane that went out to the west and did a U-turn and came back to the east, and of course, uh, all of these flights different, but with all a great tragedy and a tragic ending as well. We go to the moment of silence now at the Pentagon. They are now rising as the president walks in. Uh, I can see the media in the distance attending, the crowd assembled, uh, and then between them and that wall of the Pentagon that we all remember uh, are the dignitaries uh, with officers standing up, and I assume in the distance the president to come in and will get an image of uh, President Trump uh, in a moment. Here yeah. come the cameras in. David, please. Yeah, we see the podium. We see the lectern. I'm not sure if the president is scheduled to speak. He certainly didn't do that uh, at the White House, uh, but we'll be listening in here uh, outside the Pentagon. Again, as you say, the president making his way uh, to the front of that memorial. On this September 11th, uh, four, maybe five, uh, of, of a band in the background up on a stage, if you would, uh, with the shot from the distance in New York, the bell will ring here uh, as well. Ladies and gentlemen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph F. Dunford, Jr. So this from Washington. Ladies and gentlemen, the the Secretary of Defense. Well, they're bringing the dignitaries up on stage now. This is, of course, uh, General Dunford of the Marine Corps, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I'm sure there'll be other of the senior officers, perhaps General Neller and Admiral Richardson will join as well. And, of course, waiting for the president. We're unsure if the president will be speaking. We'll see if he makes comments. We know who's speaking in New York. 
and it is the the um, pageantry, I guess, uh, for uh, a more emotional word of uh, people of the families uh, and loved ones speaking of those that were lost uh, 16 years ago with a fire department or NYPD officer standing behind. That symbolism continues. Mrs. Trump taking the stage with the president at the Pentagon, uh, with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Secretary Mattis uh, standing uh, behind. Uh, David, it's, it's, it's good to see General Mattis. They now face the wall. David, why don't you pick it up, please? I'm just going to listen in here uh, as the Pentagon again faces, the president faces the Pentagon here on the uh, the eastern side of that building uh, where that plane struck now 16 years uh, ago. and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming and the rocket's red glare the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave O'er the land of the free And the home of the brave Where does all this this end? We've seen this transition that you describe uh, in the book. Uh, is it something that's now ingrained in the American fabric, or or is it something that could could be changed? Could could the notion of truth change yet again? Um, I I my 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 hope I I can't become uh, optimistic to some fake degree. I I am an optimist by nature, but I, I think the best we can hope for after studying this for a few years and writing it through and thinking it through is that we are at peak fantasy land. That that it doesn't get any worse. That that for a variety of reasons, for some people. Um, the spectacle of a president um, issuing falsehoods uh, and embracing falsehoods and conspiracy theories might be a, a chastening moment for others. It can be any number of things, not getting seeing people not vaccinating their children, wh- whatever it is, believing in crazy conspiracy theories concerning the 9-11 attacks. So I think it's possible that we reality based people can can gather together and put our flags in the ground and, and say this is not going to go further and that this will be as bad as it gets. That's what that's that's my greatest hope. The idea that it's going to go back to the establishment being in control and 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 everybody not everybody having this a shared version of reality and a shared set of facts. Mm, I, I think uh, I think that train has probably left the station. Yeah, lastly, here it just seems like you talk about consensus reality. Verifiability is a huge issue here. Who who defines or governs what facts are? Right, has gotten kind of messed up. I guess, and, and it's gotten messed up in lots of ways. I mean, I would say the the cultural left teed it up starting in the '60s, but the, the cultural and political right has taken it to the moon uh, in the last generation. Kurt Anderson with us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. He's the author of the new book, Fantasy Land, How America Went Haywire, a 500-year history. Of course, he's the host of Studio 360, the radio program and podcast uh, as well, Tom. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews 
on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.